Hi, I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. And welcome to episode 19 of Seeing Red. Thank you for your patience this week. We know you've waited an extra two days for this week's episode. Uh, We were kind of a bit busy celebrating our birthdays. Woo, birthdays. Woo, woo. Bethan was in a coma after hers. I knew that there'd be some sort of alcohol joke. Thank you, Mark. Well, of course. Thank you, everybody on social media who sent us some little messages and some late little memes and stuff. Thank you. It was really nice. And thank you to everybody who told me to go fuck myself. (laughs) Or told me to fuck off. I always love those comments, so keep them coming. Especially on your actual birthday. What a lovely thing to receive. (laughs) Very fortunate there. We've also hit a bit of a milestone this week. We certainly have. We've had a 50,000th download. That's amazing, honestly. Thank you so much, everybody who's listening. And we were saying earlier, we can't really believe we're kind of even up to episode 19. Yeah, it's absolutely mad. It's just gone so quickly. So, Mm. you know, here's to the next 19 episodes and, and more, hopefully. Definitely. So on to today's episode then. In the early hours of Monday the 2nd of December 1996, Maureen Harvey was woken by the sound of a car pulling up outside her house on the suburban road she lived on in the outskirts of Birmingham. Peering out of the window, she saw a police car and felt her heart stop as she heard a knock at the door. That is literally like everyone's nightmare, isn't it? And I think it was literally like 3am on a Monday morning, so you kind of... You know it's nothing good. Yeah, absolutely. Or a mistake or anything. Yeah. Mm. So, joined by her husband Ray as she raced downstairs to open the front door, greeting her on her doorstep were two police officers. Can you confirm that you're the parents of Lee Harvey, one of the officers said. Everything went black. Maureen doesn't remember what she said to the officer. The next thing she remembers is the sound of a woman screaming. This was swiftly followed by the stark realisation that this woman, whose pain she could hear so lucidly, was her. The police officers informed Maureen and Ray that their beloved son Lee had been assaulted as he drove home from the pub just hours earlier and that he had died. They informed Mr and Mrs Harvey that Lee's girlfriend Tracy, who was with him when he was attacked, had also been assaulted and that she was being treated in hospital for her injuries. As this tragic news began to sink in, no one could have foreseen that the events of that night would go on to be regarded as one of the most shocking crimes of the decade. The previous day had begun like any other Sunday for Tracy and Lee. Waking in Tracy's flat in the beautiful and much sought-after village of Alvechurch in Worcestershire, around 10 miles south of Birmingham, Tracy, a part-time model and barmaid, and Lee, a bus conductor, were, like millions of others that morning, nursing a sore head, brought on by the previous night's excesses. Oh, we've all been there. We've been there many a time. (laughs) Described as a passionate couple, their relationship was volatile, and it was marked by jealousy, argument and rage. And that Sunday, as they nursed their hangovers, it was rage that won out. Neighbours would later testify in court to hearing the couple argue that afternoon. They said they heard raised voices and the sound of ornaments being smashed against the thin walls of Tracy's kitchen. And they said this was pretty normal stuff from them. Oh God, I just can't imagine that. Like, it just seems so weird to me. But we all all know couples like that, Mm, that have got a really volatile relationship and almost they enjoy having the argument so they can then have the making up. And they thrive on it, yeah. Yeah. Later that day, having calmed down somewhat, the couple decided that a trip to the pub was in order. They made their way in Lee's white Ford Escort to the Mulbrook pub in nearby Bromsgrove. The locals could tell all was not well between the couple, however, as they sat there drinking and not really talking to each other for most of the evening. 
Tracy, wearing black leather trousers, snakeskin boots and a tight jumper, showing off her cosmetic surgeon's handiwork, turned heads that night. I wanted to make some comment about that's what you're wearing right now. See, I was thinking, like, <laughs> if you're trying to picture what this person looked like, oh, again, just imagine Bethan on a Friday oh, night heading to the pub. <laughs> So, um, I mean, to be honest, Tracy wasn't bad looking for the time, I suppose. She had a nice figure. Um, she had curves in all the right places and long blonde hair. Mm-hmm. And she really knew how to command attention from the opposite sex. Um, but this only seemed to fuel Lee's jealousy and the ensuing arguments between the couple. At around 10.25 that evening, the couple left the pub for the five-mile drive back to Tracy's home. This was a drive that would see them travel through the remote countryside around the rural county of Worcestershire. So think narrow lanes, fields, not many houses, total Mm. darkness, and you're along the right lines. As soon as they set off, Tracy knew something was wrong. Despite their earlier argument, she could sense something else was bothering Lee as he drove them home that night. Something more immediate. Muttering under his breath, it soon became apparent that an agitated Lee was trying to get away from a car that was very closely tailing them. As Lee accelerated through the country lanes, travelling at increasingly dangerous speeds, the car behind began to flash its lights and beep its horn. Neither Tracy nor Lee recognised the car that was behind them, and they knew this wasn't a joke or a friend having a laugh or trying to get their attention. As the car chased them through the narrow lanes, Tracy's instincts were telling her that this was not going to end well. At one point, as the road widened, the car that was chasing them drew level and Tracy could see the driver and his male passenger clearly. Tracy remembers seeing the driver wind his window down before shouting aggressively at Lee. Tracy could see how this was going to play out. As soon as the car had overtaken them, it would stop, blocking the road ahead, giving Lee no choice but to brake. The couple would be cornered, out in the middle of nowhere. Was she going to be raped, Lee forced to watch? Were they going to be murdered by two drug-crazed psychopaths? Tracy didn't know what the men wanted with her and Lee, and she didn't want to find out. Just as she was starting to panic, an oncoming car forced the other car to pull back behind Lee and Tracy. The couple continued on for another mile or so, all the while being chased. As they drew nearer to their final destination, they knew they would be safer than out in the middle of nowhere, with nobody around to help. Just as they were starting to think they would make it out of those dark country lanes in one piece, the car that had been chasing them suddenly overtook, and just as Tracy had predicted, it stopped suddenly, forcing Lee to bring his car to a grinding halt. With nowhere to turn, Tracy remembers a couple just sitting in the car, staring at each other, both frantically trying to work out how they would escape this nightmare. Tracy remembers a driver jumping out of his car and running over to their car before going mental at Lee. Those were her words. Lee got out of the car and an altercation broke out. Instincts kicking in, Tracy undid her seatbelt, got out of the car and went round to Lee. However, before she could get to him, the driver of the other car punched her in the face and knocked her to the ground. Tracy lay there motionless as a passenger from the other car calmly walked over to Lee before punching him several times in the chest and neck. She heard the man scream at Lee whilst he repeatedly punched him, calling him a fucking Pakistani. The next thing she remembers is a car speeding off. She went over to Lee and noticed there was blood everywhere. It slowly dawned on her that Lee's main attacker, the passenger of the other car, hadn't been punching Lee, he'd been stabbing him. As Tracy lay at the side of the road cradling a dying Lee, a local man who had heard raised voices came out of his house and looked down the lane. He could see a car stopped in the distance and the faint outline of a man and a woman in the road. 
Thinking there had been an accident, he ran over to the scene to be presented with a hysterical woman and a man who was now clearly dead. Thick, warm blood, illuminated by the harsh light of the car headlamps, oozed around Tracy and Lee as they lay there on that dark, cold night, 22 years ago, this very week. Oh, wow. So that's why you've chosen this one then. I could have saved it for Christmas. No. Because it's happening in the run-up to Christmas. I did think that when you said 2nd of December. I was like, oh, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. So, the neighbour took Tracy into his house, and whilst his girlfriend comforted her, he called the police. Two uniformed officers arrived and cordoned off the area. A blood-soaked Tracy was taken to the Alexandra Hospital in Redditch, arriving at 11.40pm, where she was treated for minor cuts and bruises, as well as shock. After nearly three hours at 2.36am, Tracy was discharged from hospital and taken to Redditch Police Station. Although she had just seen her fiancé brutally murdered before her very eyes, and she too had been beaten and knocked to the ground, the police knew they had to take a statement as soon as possible if they were to stand any chance of catching these evil bastards. Do you like how I said bastards there, Bethan? Yeah, I liked how you said it. You said it with great conviction. I thought so. Like, you really think these people are horrible. They are. Detective Brian Russell interviewed Tracy in the early hours of that morning. Tracy told the detective what had happened, that they'd been chased on the way home from the pub, cornered and attacked. She told him what the attacker had screamed at Lee, suggesting his murder had been racially motivated, and she told him that she had held Lee in her arms as he took his last breath. Tracy said the car that had chased them was a dark-coloured Ford Sierra, and she said that she had gotten a good look at the passenger in particular, whom she described as a fat man with starey eyes. And before you say anything, Beth, <laughs> no, it wasn't me. <laughs> Exactly what I was going to say. I was only 14 at the time. When you wrote this, were you literally like, oh, if I say this, she's going to go like you. Yeah. (laughs) So Tracy went into detail and described how during this frantic chase through the country lanes, Lee had missed the turning that led to a road that would have taken them to her flat. She explained that she remembers Lee frantically slamming his brakes on and reversing. At this point, the car that was chasing them was side by side, so he was able to do this without reversing into that car. She remembers Lee taking that turning and thinking for a brief moment that they had gotten away from these men. However, it wasn't long before she could see them once again in hot pursuit. Detective Russell commended Tracy for her bravery before arranging for her to be taken to her mother's house where he knew that she would be safe. He immediately set about alerting all forces in the surrounding areas to be on the lookout for a dark-coloured Ford Sierra as well as the two men matching the description Tracy had provided. At the same time, a team of forensic scientists were combing the crime scene for clues and a number of officers were looking for anything on the route that Tracy and Lee had taken that may be significant. Police set up roadblocks the following evening and stopped 650 vehicles at various checkpoints on the route they took that night, but they drew a blank. Although the investigation was still in its infancy, Detective Russell was concerned that he didn't really have a lot to go on other than Tracy's testimony. Preliminary investigations had failed to uncover a murder weapon, any witnesses, or anyone that may have held a grudge against Lee. So the next day, Tuesday the 3rd of December, Detective Russell decided to hold a press conference. The idea was to put Tracy, Maureen and Ray, Lee's parents, before the national press to directly appeal for information. The police, being the seasoned pros that they are, knew a battered and bruised woman making an emotional appeal for help in bringing her fiancé's killer to justice would carry far more gravitas than if they had simply made the appeal themselves. On the morning of the press conference, Detective Russell took Tracy out to retrace the route she had taken with Lee on that fateful Sunday night. 
He made notes of what she said, where her and Lee's car had been overtaken, where the car had attempted to overtake them before having to abandon because of the oncoming car, where Lee overshot the turning to the road that led back to Tracy's flat. Tracy knew those roads well and it wasn't difficult for her to recall exactly where they had been at various key points in that chase. Now, just to give you a bit of context, road rage was fucking huge at this time. Really? It was all over the media and there'd been a number of high profile cases where drivers had argued and it had ended in violence or murder. Wow, okay. The most famous of them all had happened just a few months earlier in May when our good friend, friend of the show, Kenneth Noy, (laughs) was involved in an altercation with 21-year-old Stephen Cameron on a slip road on the M25 near Swanley in Kent. I remember that. That was what he got put in prison for. Yeah. And Kenneth Noy, if if you're not aware of him, he's a real kind of professional criminal. Um, He was involved in all sorts of things, including the Brinks Matt robbery. He was an associate of John Palmer, who we featured in episode one, our premiere. All that time ago, 19 weeks ago, Bethan. Jesus. Yeah. Um, so he's a, he's a really bad guy, but the, the press kind of would feature different stories on him and link him to different crimes. Um, so when they were finally able to, you know, definitively link him to this murder, it was a big deal. And it kind of started off this massive media fest on road rage. Mm. So that altercation had ended with Noy stabbing Stephen Cameron to death as his petrified girlfriend looked on helplessly. That was, as I said, all over the media at the time, and it was even debated on TV and in Parliament, so it really was a big deal at that time. Consequently, the media were all over Lee's road rage killing, like flies around shit. Throw in a glamorous, traumatised blonde victim, and you have the recipe for media gold. Just before the press conference, Tracy had a moment of panic. She pleaded with Lee's mother not to have to go out there in front of the cameras with everybody watching. Maureen managed to persuade Tracy that she needed to tell the public her story. It had to be her. She was there that night and she saw what happened to Lee. Tracy reluctantly agreed and as she was led to a desk before the country's media, there were hushed gasps from the 70 or so journalists that had been assembled in the room. It was clear to the media that here sat a broken woman, a woman whose heart had been ripped out. She described so bravely the events of that night, how she had been helpless, how she had cradled Lee as he lay there dying. She held Maureen's hand throughout as she explained what had happened that night. Appealing for witnesses, she spoke powerfully and with conviction. The nation's heart broke for her. Within 24 hours, hundreds of people had come forward with details big and small that they felt might help the investigation. Some claimed to have seen the car in the locality. Others claimed to know men matching the descriptions provided by Tracy. All of these leads were investigated thoroughly by officers, however, they all came to nothing. The following day, on Wednesday the 4th of December, Detective Russell visited Tracy at her mum's house. He knew the previous day had been difficult for her, and he wanted to make sure that she was okay. He also knew it would be another opportunity to gently probe her for more details of that night, details that might lead to a breakthrough. It's my my birthday. Happy birthday. Yeah. How old would you have been? 96. Um, Seven years old. Seven. Mm. So whilst you were having a nice little kids party celebrating, she was... Being interrogated in a place again. And Mm. it gets worse. So as Detective Russell arrived at the house, Tracy's mother opened the door and took him to Tracy's bedroom where they knocked on the door. Tracy didn't answer and Detective Russell entered to find Tracy semi-conscious lying on the bed. Foaming at the mouth, I've used a bit of creative license here because I don't know if she was, but I reckon she probably was. 
So foaming at the mouth, he suspected Tracy had taken an overdose and immediately called for an ambulance. When Tracy arrived at the hospital, she was able to just about slur the fact that she had taken 200 pills. Now, I'm not sure what pills she'd taken, um, but that is a fucking lot of pills. That's just your Friday night, isn't it? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> so um, doctors were able to pump her stomach and stabilise her, which is a bit of a miracle, really. Um, and it was a really serious suicide attempt. Had Tracy been discovered just 15 minutes later, she would definitely have been dead. Wow. So she wasn't just a cry for help or something? It no, was, this this wasn't about getting attention. She wow. wanted to die. And she'd actually left two suicide notes, one to her six-year-old daughter, Carla, who I think lived with her parents at the time, um, and one to her mum and dad. So it wasn't long before news of Tracy's suicide attempt was splashed all over the newspapers. And to the outside world, it looked simply like she could not go on without Lee. Later that afternoon, as Tracy began her slow recovery in hospital, police received the breakthrough they so needed. A man telephoned the incident room to say he had been out with his girlfriend on the night of Lee's murder. While sitting at a T-junction waiting to pull out, he saw a white Ford Escort shoot past him. The man and his girlfriend recalled seeing the car stopping before reversing and then turning at the junction. This fitted perfectly with what Tracy had said, but the man said that there was no other car there. The plot thickens. He said there was no vehicle pursuing that car whatsoever. According to Tracy, the car had been in hot pursuit when they missed that junction. This immediately threw Tracy's testimony into doubt. Mm, Because it's not exactly like you can miss the other car. And that's why I wanted to include the detail of them missing that T-junction and having to reverse. Mm. It was quite boring narrative, but it's really important because obviously this eyewitness statement throws that into doubt yeah the tables are turning so what else was this other bitch lying about oh you've changed from having sympathy for her well not actually but saying sympathetic well, things I've, want, I've wanted to lead people on a yeah. path that she didn't do it but... no definitely because this is her story her story was that she didn't yeah. and this was her story before and up I... until up until this point i'm telling it from her perspective mm. up until this point uh th- there was no shadow really around and you're kind of telling her it from the police's perspective as well this yeah. is what they honestly thought they got this woman but suddenly hmm. as tracy continued to recover in hospital maureen lee's mum, remembers visiting her and she remembers tracy grabbing her hand and saying i'm sorry i'm sorry for what i've done ray maureen's husband nudged her and said that's the nearest you're going to get to a confession wow Refusing to believe that Tracy could be responsible for her son's murder, Maureen rebuffed Ray's accusation, saying she would reserve judgment and let the police do their work. She did confess much later, however, to thinking she just couldn't quite understand how the attackers had let Tracy witness Lee's murder and live to tell the tale. Mm -hmm. And I think she's got a really good point there. Definitely. Police were now starting to think Tracy's suicide attempt may have been born out of guilt, or that perhaps she knew it would only be a matter of time before the real events of that night were exposed for all the world to see. Police went over Tracy's statement, comparing it with all of the evidence they had received. As the evidence mounted, it just seemed to stack up against her. In her police statement, Tracy said she'd been on the ground, knocked down as Lee was being attacked. She had only got to him after the attackers had gone, and that's when she got blood on her clothes. But police looked at Tracy's jumper, and the pattern of blood could only have come from an arterial spray. 
Lee's jugular vein had been severed and a fountain of blood would have spurted from the wound. So much blood would have been ejected that this spray would have dissipated after just 60 seconds. So how could Tracy have got this blood from an arterial spray on her jumper if she had only got to Lee Mm. after the car had sped away? That does, to me though, 60 seconds does seem like a long time. Like, I'm surprised by that. I thought you were going to say, like, six seconds. Really interesting. I think it's basically ejecting the vast majority of blood mm. that you have in you yeah. out of you. That's so crazy. there's so much blood coming out and it's spurting out at such a pace mm. that after 60 seconds, there is barely any what blood left. Yeah. And I suppose the heart has pretty much stopped pumping it at that point. Mm. I don't know. So, yeah, I mean, by the time Tracy had got round to Lee, that would have been more than 60 seconds after Lee's jugular vein had been severed and the blood would have stopped spraying. Mm. The man and woman whose house the murder happened near to said they only heard two voices outside during the attack. One was softly spoken, believed to be that of Tracy, and the other was louder, believed to be that of Lee. They did not hear any other voices or any other kind of shouting that night. On Saturday the 7th of December, barely six days after Lee's murder, police were confident they had got their woman. They arrested Tracy on suspicion of murder as soon as she was discharged from hospital. And I think from what I've seen and read, she was literally arrested in the car park. Wow. She was taken to Redditch Police Station where she was interviewed under caution. Lee's parents were informed of her arrest and detectives were hopeful that she would confess to her crime. But Tracy stood firm. During her police interview, she was represented by not one, but two solicitors. Detective Russell said this was practically unheard of, and it severely hampered any progress during their questioning of Tracy. Her solicitors didn't allow her to answer the majority of questions that were presented to her. However, undeterred, detectives continued to challenge her about the accuracy and truth of her account, suggesting to her that it was her that had killed Lee that night. Tracy didn't flinch. Detective Russell recalled that same demeanour he had encountered when he first questioned Tracy as a witness in the early hours of Monday morning, just hours after Lee's murder. On that occasion, she had appeared calm, composed and in control. He hadn't really thought much of this at the time, but seeing her again in this formal setting, it made him question her behaviour in that earlier interview. I think that's the thing. Sometimes, like, well, everybody reacts to things differently, so you can't take um, someone perhaps being cold and calm in the um, after this has happened as an admission of guilt but actually then when you look back and you know what you know and you think actually it would be a bit of a weird thing you'd think someone would be a bit more hysterical or yeah and like like we've said and like we've encountered loads of times as you've said mm. people react differently in those situations so I suppose he didn't really have any context but when he's interviewing her in this formal setting for a second time mm. it probably hammered home the fact that actually this is a bit weird yeah we're accusing her of the murder of her fiance now and I've got the same Tracy in front of me yeah that was in front of me just three hours after she'd witnessed his brutal murder mm. One of the detectives said, this isn't going to go away, Tracy. And at this point, she bowed her head and asked to speak to her lawyers alone. They consulted for 45 minutes before reconvening the interview. Thinking Tracy was about to confess, Detective Russell's hopes were dashed when she said, I'm not going to tell you anything else. I'm sticking to my story. That's a weird way to put it. That's a really strange thing to say. If you're innocent, you'd say something like, I'm not going to tell you anything else because I didn't do it. Or I've been advised by my solicitors to not... Say anything yeah, else. Yeah, I'm sticking to my story. That's just... Mm. I think she's obviously consulted with those lawyers. They know what's happened. Yeah. And they've just said, look, you need to stick to your story. There's a, a good probability here that you won't get found guilty if well, it goes to thing, trial. If, if they can convince a jury, then she might not get convicted. Whereas 
if she keeps talking, there could be an issue. And I also think at this point, it might not have even got to trial. Yeah. Her solicitors might have been thinking, this might not even get past the CPS and mm. make it to trial. Yeah. Amazingly, Tracy was released on bail on the condition that she would live with her mother, obey a curfew and report to the police station every day. And if you think about it, they didn't really have any evidence other than that no. eyewitness account, um, which had thrown Tracy's testimony into doubt. But mm. there was no murder weapon at this point. There were no other witnesses. Um, so, yeah, I can I can sort of understand it, really. It is still circumstantial, just because she said there was another car at that point, but the other people didn't see a car. Well, she could have mistaken about what turning and yeah. stuff. Yeah, like- and we will come on to that a bit when I talk about the trial mm. and, you know, her kind of throwing that witness testimony into doubt. It's quite interesting what she says. With the murder weapon still missing, police continued to investigate exactly what had gone down that night. Stab wounds were present on Lee's body, 37 of them. Mm. In fact, they were able to conclude that Lee had actually been stabbed 42 times, but five of of those stab wounds were in existing wounds. Um, But there were also small double pricks on Lee's body. I'm really trying to say that with a straight face. (laughs) Uh, to show some respect to the victim there. Um, but but there you were, also had to say the word prick. But I also had to say the word pricks, and I can't say that without laughing. So police experts quickly ascertained that Lee had been stabbed with a Swiss army knife, and the small double pricks were from the small pair of scissors that you get on such implements. Wow. Further searches of the crime scene were conducted, but the weapon was never found. Police believed Tracy had ditched the knife somewhere, but where? Yeah, like at what point would she get a time? Would she get time to do that? Well, we'll come on to it. Mm. And I remember this crime vividly because it happened actually just a couple of miles from where I lived. Really? Um, at that crazy. time, yeah. So where I was brought up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember people speculating that Tracy had actually disposed of the murder weapon in the car's petrol tank, which is a sort of ingenious okay. place to put the murder weapon. But then also, it's like. The police would probably look in things like that. I don't know. I thought I thought it was pretty ingenious. But to be mm. fair, you're right. The police did rip the car to pieces. Uh, they looked at that knife and obviously they didn't find it there. Mm. So that theory was thrown into doubt. They came to the conclusion that Tracy disposed of the knife at the hospital she was taken to in the early hours of Monday mm. morning. Yeah, because if you put it in a sharp spin, they just get incinerated, don't they? This is it. Yeah. And if you remember, she was regarded as a witness at this time. Yeah. So mm. she wasn't supervised. She was allowed to go to the toilet. She was allowed out of the ward um, as many times as she liked. So mm-hmm. they think that she went to the toilet and she put it in one of those sharp spins um, or one of those special bins. And bins are treated very differently, as we know, in a hospital. So yeah. Well, even just like, you yeah, like, sorry, Mark, lady products bin. Ooh, gross. Know, I'm sorry. But nobody, like, they get emptied quite a lot. Like, it's, they're not, it's not a bin that somebody would take the lid off no. or something. So, yeah, there's a lot of ways she could have got rid of that. Interesting evidence was presented at Tracy's trial, which supported this theory, more of which in a minute. Oh. Teasing you there. I'm on tenterhooks. On the 7th of February in 1997, Lee's funeral was held at St Nicholas's Church in Kings Norton. His family had had to wait 10 agonising weeks before they could lay him to rest. Mm. Obviously, Tracy wasn't present at the funeral. She was busy preparing her defence with her legal team in preparation for her trial, which was due to begin at Birmingham Crown Court on the 1st of July. On the opening day of her trial, the prosecution outlined their case against Tracy. They said that something had taken place in the car on the way home that night. Perhaps they were continuing their argument from earlier. Perhaps Lee was not happy with the way Tracy had commanded attention when she had walked into the pub that evening. Whatever it may have been, an altercation ensued. Perhaps Lee struck her. 
they pulled over to continue their argument on those cold, dark country lanes and Tracy saw red. Reaching for her Swiss army knife, she stabbed Lee in what the pathologist called a frenzied attack. Over the following days, the prosecution called several neighbours who testified to overhearing a loud argument on the afternoon as Lee's murder, as I said at the beginning of the episode. According to witnesses from the pub, the only time they spoke to each other that night was when they were arguing. Next, prosecutors called the witnesses who had seen Lee's car as they sat at that T-junction. The witnesses were compelling and emphatically denied that Lee's car was being chased that night. And and yeah, you would know if the car was being chased or if it was just driving fast. It was dark, you would have seen the lights, you would have just seen it. Mm -hmm. Lee's car caught their attention because it was driving so fast. Um, And why would they lie? They had no reason to lie. Yeah, exactly. After 10 days, it was Tracy's turn to take the stand. She was the star witness for the defence and her legal team knew they could rely on her to put in a convincing performance. As ever, Tracy remained calm and composed throughout her five hours of testimony. Reporters described her as detailed and consistent and they agreed that she presented herself very well. She said she had never deliberately lied to the police but that perhaps her memory had been affected due to the trauma she had suffered that night, as you said earlier. Mm. When she was challenged about the testimony of the couple who had not seen a car chasing her that night, she said they must have been talking to each other, not looking properly. She was very dismissive of their claim and she was very believable. And I think this is the thing, like, you don't want to disbelieve someone who's gone through this if they're giving you a good case. And, I mean, obviously, she she clearly did it, but I just think, like, you would be kind of like, oh, well, yeah, she's she's so calm and collected and she's remembered this all so perfectly. I think that's a thing. And you would also, as a member of the jury, you would just be like, yeah, maybe that couple at the T-junction were having their own argument. Maybe mm. they thought they saw something um, and they hadn't. So, yeah, I can understand it. And she was so convincing mm. and so composed. So, so yeah. manipulative. Very manipulative. Very manipulative. Manipulative, yeah. manipulative bitch. <laughs> <laughs> At one point during her testimony, she explained to the jury how she'd fallen pregnant the previous year and how Lee had left her, forcing her to have an abortion. At the time, she had explained this away as a miscarriage and when Lee's mother heard the truth, she gasped and shouted, Liar! Do you like how I screamed that? that beautiful. You should be on the stage. I should. For the first time, Tracy's composure slipped. She pointed at Maureen and said viciously, I want her out. I want her out now. Done it again. Honestly, this is... This is beautiful. I've been having acting lessons. (laughs) The prosecution dissected her story piece by piece. They got her riled up and angry and the jury could see that. They could see this was a woman who had the capacity to do something as brutal as had happened to Lee. The prosecution went into further detail towards the end of the trial, claiming the couple had argued in the car on the way back from the pub as Tracy had given Lee a hat of a type associated with black people and people had previously said that Lee looked mixed race, which he wasn't. There was evidence that Tracy had produced the hat in the car, how they know that I don't fucking know, and this hat was subsequently then found in a nearby ditch. I cannot think of like... I just don't get why that would be an argument as someone brought you a hat. I also can't think of any sort of hat that would... I just don't get that. I think it's just... It's smacks, so It's complete racism though, isn't it? It's, yeah, like you know, she's li- just kind of trying... People sort of commented that Lee looked mixed race and 
you know, I'm guessing that they would take the piss out of him for that. He Absolutely, didn't like it. that's disgusting. But you know, it was obviously a sore point for him, and she'd bought this hat as a bit of a joke, and mm. that's when an argument ensued, and all of this happened. So, as I say, how they fucking know that mm. she produced a hat in the car? I'll never know. She did also say when she was making up her story, didn't she, that they the people who'd attacked him had made some sort of racial slur yeah. comment. So. She's obviously like she or both of them have obviously got some sort of race issue already going on. I thought exactly the same mm-hmm. as I was researching it. You know that cropped up a couple of times, and she obviously made up what this you know bullshit driver had said to Lee. Um, but you know she deliberately chose her words and wanted to make out it was racially motivated. Closing arguments were presented to the jury on the 28th of July and the next day they were told that they could consider provocation in mitigation which would have meant a lesser charge of manslaughter and a vastly reduced sentence for Tracy. Despite this, after five hours of deliberation, Tracy was found guilty of murder. I do find this really interesting though that there is no actual proof that she did it. Yeah, but, but she's. I always. Find but that then you, very they've, got, they've got they've got the arterial it. spray thing. So yeah, how did oh, arterial spray? I think it was almost just they were able to pick so many holes yeah, in, in her, her witness testimony, mm-hmm. and they did have these other witnesses that said actually the car wasn't being chased. Yeah. As the verdict was delivered, she sat there with her head in her hands, looking at the floor. Tracy Andrews was sentenced to life in prison and told she must serve a minimum of fourteen years. Now, what do you think about fourteen years? You know what my thing is? I always think the sentence is too short. I always find it just bizarre. 14 years for getting so angry that you stabbed someone, what was it, 42 times? Yeah, she stabbed him 42 times. He had 37 stab wounds. Mm. I think that is a particularly low sentence in the grand Mm. scheme of, you know, murders that we've covered. I mean, it is life though, and that's the minimum, so... It's, it could be. It is, but, you know, yeah, she's going to be out after 14 years. Yeah. She's she's going to be on a life license where she's going to have to obey certain conditions. But it's and better to is... have that and be out than be mm-hmm. inside still. And she is out now, isn't she? She is, yeah. So um, there are a few further twists and turns, which I will cover briefly in a moment. But Like the road uh, they were driving on. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. Great symmetry. You're usually the poetic one. I felt like I had to. I, l- I love bring that. Something to and the I'm table. actually ending today's episode with a very poetic. Oh shit! You're not reading us poetry again, are you? It's not poetry, but I hope you, I hope you'll pick oh, up on it. Do you know and what like I love? It. I love a good poetic ending. Yeah, I I don't know if it's poetic, but it's a bit of a pun. Nice. Um, So, yeah, there are a few more twists and turns, which I will come on to. But I did want to talk a little bit about who Tracy was and how she met Lee and what their relationship was really like. Mm. So born on the 9th of April in 1969, Tracy's father walked out of the family home when she was just eight, never to return again. Her mother remarried and although Tracy did get on with her stepfather, she never got over her father's betrayal. In later life, this betrayal manifested itself as a primal need for male attention. Tracy loved cock and she loved men. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I knew you'd fucking laugh your head off at that. Oh my god. I love that I can't see what you've written, so it's such a surprise. I knew you wouldn't see that coming fucking either. Hell. And oh again, my god. I've used a bit of uh, creative license here. I don't know that she loved cock to that extent, but. Um, I'm gonna oh, I'm gonna I say it because it's funny, isn't it? Said that that is the f- I think that is my favourite thing you've ever said on <laughs> I was, this podcast. I was laughing ever. to myself as I wrote it. To I be bet fair, you were. Jeez, oh my god. <laughs> so moving on, she fell pregnant at twenty, Ooh. and her relationship with the father of her daughter soon ended, leaving Tracy lurching from one doomed relationship to the next. 
Always one to make the best of herself, her look soon attracted the attention of low-rent modelling agencies. And she did do some modelling, although I think it was probably more the kind where dirty old perverts advertising the back of the local rag, saying (laughs) they need a model to pose topless for whatever art project they're working Mm. on at the time. So she also worked as a barmaid at the Red Lion pub in Alfchurch, a pub I have frequented on many occasions for the odd drink, Ing Binge. I was going to say. It's a nice pub. You can't just have one. And when I have been there, I have thought about her behind the bar working there. Although that would have been sort of 20 years hence. It's It's weird, isn't it? Yeah, still so weird. And especially like a bar, it's probably all the same glasses that she would have handled. Oh, I hope they'd have changed them after 20 years. No, you just wash them, don't they? Maybe. They get used a lot though. But you know, she would have she would have been familiar with that pub she works there and and I think that's what's inspired me to cover this case. Mm. It's always interesting when you have that little bit of a connection to something. Yeah. Mm. And as I said, you know, it was all just a couple of miles down the road from me, so I was familiar with that area. My sister lives in Alf Church. Um it's a really nice village, a great place to live. Tracy met Lee in October 1994 at Baker's Nightclub on Birmingham's notorious Broad Street. Now, if you have ever been for a night out on Broad Street, you'll know the type of people that frequent the clubs there. Celebrities, lawyers and city types, they are not. (laughs) And I know Baker's, the club that they met at, and it is closed now, but it was a very druggy pub, um, club rather. Lots of pill popping and line snorting going on there, and I wouldn't be surprised if Tracy indulged in the odd toot herself. There, there goes that creative license again. Mm. Should we, we suing us? Well, <laughs> from the very beginning of their relationship, they were madly in love with each other. Lee described the sex they had as the best he had ever had, and I can imagine Tracy being absolute filth. Yeah, she's if she's that sexy. Like, as a person, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Within weeks of meeting, Lee had practically moved in with Tracy. However, upon introducing her to his parents, his mother Maureen immediately had reservations. She remembers thinking this is not the sort of girl you want your son to settle down with. Oh, do you know what? Mums always know best. Absolutely. She Mm. knew. So she said, within 20 minutes of meeting her, I thought, what a lovely looking girl. But at the same time, I could see she was insecure. She was very quick to share her life story, painting herself as the victim. Maureen described the relationship as intense. She said it was fiery and passionate. They were constantly breaking up and Lee would often turn up at the family home, claiming it was all over and that he wanted to move back in. As the relationship progressed, Maureen said Tracy became possessive, wanting to know where Lee was, who he was with. And to be fair to Maureen, she said Lee was the same. There was lots of jealousy and it was on both sides. So it's almost one of these cases where, you know, two people meet each other and had they met different people, none of this may have ever happened. Mm, They were just toxic for each other. Yeah. Tracy and Lee would go out and she would be flirting with men, dancing on her own, beckoning men over in front of Lee. She was always flaunting her assets. And if you look at the Instagram post, you'll be able to see what she looked like at the time. And she's got she's got her jubblies on display in one of mm-hmm. those photos, which was taken on the way into court. Oh my God. So she was obviously trying to garner yeah. favour with the jury. Mm-hmm. Pretty much from the outset, police were called to Tracy's flat on numerous occasions in relation to various domestic incidents. Lee's mum could see her son's personality changing. She said she told Tracy of this, but Lee just couldn't stay away from her for long. They would have lots of rows, then passionate making up. 
In May 1995, Lee proposed. Tracy said yes, but what followed was lots of volatility. As I said, splitting up multiple times before getting back together. Maureen warned her son, telling him, you're heading for disaster. And as we have seen, this proved to be very true. So you're absolutely right. Mother knows best. Yeah, it must be really rubbish as well to be her and then look back on it and just be like, oh, if only I'd really like pushed him not to go back to her that but, last time. But love is blind. Yeah. After her sentencing, Tracy did appeal her conviction, citing the publicity surrounding the case at the time as having had a detrimental impact on her chances of a fair trial. And I can kind of see that because there was so much publicity about this and the media sort of ripped her to pieces as soon as she was arrested, you know, painting her as a victim at the beginning and then as this assassin. So, Mm. um, yeah, I can kind of see where she was coming from. This is very similar with like the Jodie Jones case, wasn't it? Yeah. They they were like, well, you shouldn't have done it in the, the city or the town where he's from and stuff it's so difficult it is yeah and it's difficult to find a jury that's going to be impartial all the time yeah Mm. she claimed she was the victim of a miscarriage of justice and she urged the court to find her murder conviction unsafe in a summary of the court's judgment lord justice rock said we do not consider that this jury was prevented from reaching a proper verdict by the reporting in the media of this case on either of the issues this jury has decided, namely whether they were sure it was the appealant who had killed Lee Harvey, and secondly, whether they were sure that the possibility of this being a case of manslaughter by provocation had been excluded by the Crown. Why they can't just fucking do short sentences, I'll never know. <laughs> They want to make you run out of breath before the end. Yeah. He went on to say, we have already indicated the strength of the prosecution's case against the appealant and the conclusion we have reached is that there is nothing unsafe in her conviction. In 1995, she finally confessed to murdering Lee. She claimed self-defence and the irony is that had she admitted her culpability during the trial, citing self-defence, it is likely that she would have been convicted of manslaughter Mm. and she would have probably served half of the sentence that she went on to serve. Yeah, definitely, because I'm not defending it whatsoever. But if you sit there and give the jury a sob story of he was really jealous, he was horrible, he was being really nasty and I flipped and or even like he attacked me and I reacted, it's still going to be manslaughter, but... You, they might have a bit of sympathy for you. Yeah. Instead, they've just got this woman in front that they don't love like at all. And the other thing, I don't think it's mandatory life sentence for manslaughter. So, for example, if she got sentenced to 10 years in prison, she would have probably served half of that for good yeah. behaviour. Whereas when it's murder, it has to be life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's life with a minimum term. Yeah. And her minimum term was 14 years and she did go on to serve all of that. Yeah. Whilst in prison, she continued to make headlines, however. She was commended for saving the life of a woman who attempted suicide, and although she pretty much kept herself to herself, she was a popular inmate. Anne Darwin, the woman who helped her husband John fake his death in that canoe before cashing in on a number of life insurance policies, writes about the time she spent in Ascombe Grange Open Prison in Yorkshire with Tracy. She said they had many conversations about what life would be like on the outside for them. After all, their crimes had garnered mass media attention. They were infamous and this would surely have an impact on them returning to any semblance of a normal life once on the outside. I find it so interesting when you mention people like that because I found that the whole canoe disappearance guy he's just so interesting that's a brilliant case and I've I've read Anne's book it's a brilliant book I'd recommend you lent me that did I lend you that you lent me it so you read it it then of course yeah so good absolutely amazing yeah I think you know again actually with that she paints the picture of 
almost an abusive relationship with lots of um, control from John. Mm. So there are some parallels there that yeah. Tracy was perhaps in an abusive relationship. I know some of that abuse was at her own hands, but, you know, it was abusive on, on both sides. Something I found really interesting, which I forgot to tell you, is um, somebody on Facebook, Marie, commented when we were saying about this was the case we were going to cover, and she commented saying that she knew someone who was briefly in prison with Tracy. Wow. Um, but she said, I don't have any other info, unfortunately. I should have asked more questions. Oh, so I've said to her, if you that. ever find out more, we'll have to do like a bit of an amendment to the case or to the story. And we have had, what's really interesting about the show is we have had people get in touch with us that have been affected, were personally involved, knew people that were involved, mm-hmm. spent time in prison with the murderer, whoever. And yeah, I find that so interesting. Yeah. And generally, we don't really cover that on the show because those people have got in touch with us yeah, uh, on a private facts. basis. Yeah. So, But also after, but but you know, they've, they've got in touch with us yeah. generally in confidence. So Definitely. we wouldn't betray that confidence. Mm. But it's very interesting for us. Yeah, really interesting for us. So going back to the time Anne spent in prison with Tracy, she said that she would let Tracy cut her hair. So Tracy trained to be a hairdresser whilst in prison and people were quite happy to let Tracy wield those scissors just inches from their own necks. Hmm. But that probably says to me that this was a one-off for her. It was a crime of passion. Yeah, it was a crime of passion. She was in an abusive relationship on both sides and that she wasn't just going to go around murdering people for the sake of it. Tracy was released from prison in July 2011 and as part of her lifelong licence she was banned from travelling within 25 miles of Lee's family without supervision. So she has since moved to Cornwall um, where she married a bouncer in August 2018 and she changed her name to Tia Carter, dyed her hair black and she's just going about her life. Um, She feels that she served a punishment and she shouldn't have to apologise every day for the rest of her life. For Maureen and Ray Harvey, and indeed all of Lee's loved ones, it is a very different life for them, where not a day goes by without them thinking of Lee and the life he could be leading now had it not been for Tracy seeing Red. There you go. Oh my God, that was amazing. Yeah? Yeah. Do you like that? Loved that. You did say it, I'm sure, at some point in your I did case. say sort of early on yeah, that she I, saw red. And I wanted to say something, and then I was like, well, you were on... You I was were, glad you, you didn't say flow. anything, because I thought, I save it better. Save it for the end. And that was beautiful. It got better. I don't even think we need to say anything else. I think that's it. Okay, so we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Don't forget we have partnered with Just Killing Time subscription box. Yeah, so if you want to get 10% off a subscription where they send you out a monthly box of true crime goodies, you can use our code. Which is Seeing Red Pod. And you'll get 10% off for the lifetime of your subscription. So it's not like a one-off saving. It's really, really good. Um, they send you out a box full of goodies each month. And we'll put some links on our social media pages mm-hmm. so you can see what they're all about. Definitely. you get mad when listening to true crime well so do i if you want a weekly true crime podcast that says what you're thinking then grab a beer and pull up a deck chair this is cambo from true crime island another true crime podcast and maintain the rage with me visit truecrimeisland.com where you can download or stream each episode plus there's links to itunes and social media and as i always say Don't forget to delete your browser history. This is True Crime Island.